Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. does an American political progressive in the 21st century have in common with the pagan of ancient Rome? More than you may think, according to law professor Stephen D. Smith, in his important provocative new book, Pagans and Christians in the City, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac, Smith shows that traditionalist Christians who oppose same-sex marriage and similar cultural developments feel themselves besieged by a triumphalist progressivism that increasingly is adopting a we-won-they-lost view of where society and public opinion now stand on issues such as abortion and euthanasia, and has little use for what it regards as passe notions about religious liberty. Smith, borrowing a term from T.S. Eliot, dubs this increasingly intolerant form of left-wing thinking modern paganism. And in his book, we learn how even the U.S. Constitution is being paganized by a left that regards the views of conservative Christians, in the words of the noted conservative legal and political philosopher Robert P. George, in his foreword to Smith's book, as not only unsound but unreasonable, outrageous, scandalous, even hateful. They can account for, if at all, only as religious irrationalism, bigotry, or as many today now claim, a psychopathology. Those are Robert George's words. <laughs> Where do we stand these days when it comes to working out some kind of social cultural modus vivendi between the diametrically opposed camps of modern paganism and Christianity, and not even, in many cases, the traditionalist version? Smith provides us with the historical background we need to understand where everyone involved is, so to speak, coming from. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Stephen D. Smith the author of the 2018 book, Pagans and Christians in the City, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac. Steve, before we get to who you are, let's get to the obvious question. What do you mean by pagan vis-a-vis 2020 American political and cultural life? While we are at it, could you please explain what you mean by eminent religiosity? That is a key concept in your book. Could you flesh it out for our listeners? Uh, sure, I'll try to. Those are uh, big and difficult questions, so you're getting right to the heart of some of the difficult concepts in the book. Um, as you noted already, I got the term pagan and began using it to describe what I'm doing from an essay or a set of lectures actually by T.S. Eliot, who said that basically the modern world in the West would be determined by a contest between Christianity and modern paganism. Now, that strikes a lot of people, I think, as a pretty implausible description of, of anything they see in the world today. I mean, there, there are probably self-describing uh, pagans um, who you know engage in one, one or another sort, sort of cult practice, but that doesn't seem to most people like a very accurate description of the politically and socially salient uh, you know, constituencies that we're talking about here, like pro- progressives and so forth, and, and academics, certainly. Um, so one of the challenges in the book was to explain why that term might be apt, uh, despite people's uh, suspicion of it. Um, and the way I tried to do that was to talk about, first of all, what, what religion is. And that's a much disputed term, as you know. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to me that um, one way to approach that was to say that religion is kind of a commitment to some sort of sacred, to the holy, to the sacred, the idea that there is in reality something that's distinguishable from just secular or mundane reality that you could describe as holy. Then the next question would be, where does someone locate the holy? And uh, a number of scholars that I've read suggest that in ancient Greece and Rome, in in the world of antiquity, uh, there was a lot of belief in gods. And there were lots of variations in the way in which people believed in those gods, whether they believed in them literally or um, more metaphorically and so forth. But that uh, the gods were gods in and of this world. They weren't transcendent. They didn't, uh, you know, they didn't basically create the world. They were within the world. And then scholars like Jan Osman, the Egyptologist, argues that the distinctive thing about later Judaism and Christianity was that they believed in a transcendent God, you know, a God who, and I've been reminded so many times of this point, is often within the world. Christianity certainly believes in an imminent God, indeed in an incarnate God, 
but a God who was ultimately transcendent, you know, who was outside of the world, who created the world, um, and that this was a radical revolution, Osman and others suggest. So uh, going from that uh, suggestion, the fundamental distinction that runs through the book is between transcendent religiosity and imminent religiosity. And I understand in proposing that, that that's a very elusive distinction, um, both in the abstract and uh, in trying to figure out how it works in concrete situations. Nonetheless, uh, I follow a number of other scholars and theologians in thinking that it's an important distinction, that, that a lot has actually turned on it, however elusive it might be. So in that context, pagan basically is a label for imminent religiosity. Um, and so that's how I'm using the term. Well, that's very helpful. Um, now that you've tackled the incredibly abstruse <laughs> things that might be, I mean, things are difficult for average readers, but I must say that for average readers, and I'm an average reader and your book is very approachable and very understandable. It just helps to have a little background on that particular concept because Thank it is you. kind of difficult. It has um, been for a lot of readers, I can tell you. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, now, uh, usually on the New Books Network, we ask the guests to speak about your professional background. So could you do that and how you came to write this book? And um, specifically, I'd like to mention that, ask who the intended audience in this. And I'd like to say in this regard that when I first became, that I first became aware of a book by the very public praise of it by the conservative public intellectual Robert P. George of Princeton, who also wrote the foreword to the book. And, as, and yet, as I read the book, I kept thinking that progressives and others who are far from considering themselves conservative would also benefit immensely by reading it in order to gain a grasp of how their own beliefs have been informed by and are infused with centuries of tensions between pagan this worldism, which you've just discussed, and, fa- and other faiths, particular, and faiths, particularly Christianity, that place their hopes in a world beyond this one, even while fighting for justice in this world. Am I right in saying that the book has as much to offer liberals as to conservatives? Well, I would like to think so, and I certainly didn't want to write it just for conservatives or just for Christians or just for religious people in the traditional sense of religious. Um, I'm actually a, I'm a law professor, and I mostly do write for academic audiences, but certainly not conservative or religious audiences, and that would be a pretty small audience in my world if, you know, if I were to direct my work primarily at them. So, so I hope that's true. Um, you, you began by asking something about my background, and I guess I've already said I'm not actually a historian, not not a histor- a Roman historian or a historian of early Christianity, um, and I'm not really even a classicist. So this is a little bit of a different project for me. It was uh, getting into this. Um, I could tell you a little bit if you're interested about how I came to write this particular book, which is different than most of what law professors write or than what I've written uh, in the past. Um, Oh, please do. Okay, so I've written a lot about constitutional law over the years, uh, some about legal philosophy, um, quite a lot about religious freedom. That's an area that has become you know, of great interest to a lot of people, and I've been working in that field for quite a long time, so, uh, so naturally I get involved in writing about that kind of a subject. Now, what happened in this case is that uh, back in 2015, there was a brouhaha, you may remember, about uh, a statute passed in the state of Indiana, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, as it was Absolutely. called in Indiana. And it really caused a commotion. And it was, uh, uh, a lot of it was quite interesting because it was almost word for word identical to a statute that Congress had passed back in 1993 with virtually unanimous support across the political spectrum, uh, a statute called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that had been signed by Bill Clinton in a speech in which he praised it and said that religious freedom is the first of our liberties and we need to be willing to fight to the death to defend it and so forth. But a lot had changed in the intervening period. And so when Indiana passed a similar statute on the state level, um, it was denounced by pundits, politicians, boycotts were imposed and so forth. And eventually it was modified somewhat, you know, to try to escape the criticisms that had been made. Well, I had been asked to write just basically a blog post for a kind of religious freedom website about that. And in the course of doing it, I uh, was trying to find some a different angle on it. Academics usually try to do that. That would make my post a little bit, you know, a little more interesting, not just the, the mundane thing. And so I had happened to be reading this book by T.S. Eliot, rereading it. I had read it some years earlier, in which he talked about the contest between paganism and Christianity. And so I put a little um, 
a paragraph, I think, about that, you know, um, from the book into the blog post. And one person who happened to be visiting at our school at the time, a somewhat noted character and academic, Stanley Fish, you may know, uh, Uh told me that uh, he thought the post was interesting and that the Elliot part was the most interesting aspect of it. So it occurred to me that's something that could be developed. So even though, as I say, I'm not a Roman historian or a classicist, I began sort of doing more work on that, more research. It was fascinating reading. For me, it was a great break from just reading boring contemporary law review articles. <laughs> and, uh, and the book is what came out of that. Um, and as you know from having read it, it has more on ancient history or the history of, let's say, in late antiquity, Roman and Christian history than it has probably on contemporary history, although it does have several chapters trying to apply uh, you know, what I get out of the ancient history to our contemporary situation. Well, getting back to the, to the history aspect of it, uh, you do mention, for those of us who don't know Augustine very well, could you discuss the, what you mean, the, the, the meaning of the word, the city in your title? Could you please elaborate on that and how that, what that, how that reflects on the book and what, 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 the, what that deals with? Yeah, I'll try to do that. A uh, city yeah, is, I guess, sort of a metaphor. You know, Augustine's probably most uh, famous and important book. He, he wrote a lot, but uh, but probably his most revered book is uh, The City of God. Mm. The full title is, I think, at least sometimes it's listed as City of God Against the Pagans. Um, and when Augustine, and Augustine in the book talks about two cities, you know, the city of God and the city of man. Um, and city in that sense refers not to some particular city like like Rome or you know Athens, but rather to sort of let's say the human society and polity, something of that sort. Um, human beings, but um, you know, in our social political relations with each other, and the city of God is sometimes identified with the church, but that's not a that's not a good identification. You know, the church would be sort of like an institutional representation of the city of God, but the city of God would be more, you know, the, the heavenly city reflecting, uh, again, the communion of saints, let's say, and, you know, our relations with God and each other considered in, uh, un- under the aspect of our love of God and faith in God. So, so it's meant to be, to indicate that this is not just pagans and Christians in general, I'm considering their social and political dimensions. I think it's, it's focus on that. And so that lends itself to tying this into current constitutional law and so forth. So that, that's sort of what I mean, uh, trying to use this, the term in basically the same way I think Augustine used it. Okay. And then, and then T.S. Eliot basically broadened it out to Western civilization. He talked about a Christian society. There was a stark choice. I believe that the lectures were 1939 or? Yes. And he, he he talked about the choice that was facing the world between or facing the West between remaining a Christian society, even though he wasn't he was ambivalent about whether it actually was, I believe, and and giving in to modern paganism. Could you discuss how, how what, what Eliot's view of, of of where he was at the time, and or even he wasn't it wasn't even historically situated, right? He's just speaking about Christian society over the eons. Well, yes, I mean he was he gave the lectures at Cambridge in 1939. No doubt he was aware of sort of looming fascism and so forth and the existence of communism. And, and the paganism may have had some reference to, to those sorts of possibilities. Um, and he talked about Western societies having to make that choice. And he was ambivalent, I suppose, about whether Western societies are Christian societies. I think he says specifically that they are Christian societies but not in any robust sense. Mm. He says, basically, they're Christian societies by default in the sense that they were once Christian societies. And he said, and they remain Christian societies until they become positively something else. And he didn't think they had become, at that point, positively something else. A bit more in a sort of a confused no man's land, I think, is, is the way he saw it. And so he figured, again, sort of by default, they were Christian societies. In the book, I say kind of much in the way that Somebody under the law is treated as a domiciliary of some place where they had citizenship until they establish a domicile somewhere else, even if they haven't been in that place for decades. You know, I think that's the way Eliot uh, was thinking of ours as being Christian societies. And yeah, I think he did think that there was something that he described as modern paganism that was looming as a potential 
kind of replacement, the positively something else uh, that might make them no longer Christian societies. So for me, that was a good takeoff point for the kinds of questions I wanted to consider. Beyond that, I don't really do much with Eliot's specific thought, you know, and, and all the specific contents of his essay. Uh, it's more, as I say, more of a takeoff point, but I think it's a very suggestive one and kind of a helpful one. I mean, he's, Eliot says at the beginning of the lectures, he's proposing this somewhat unusual idea because he thinks it will help clarify things that the way in which we are thinking about things today often just produces more confusion than illumination. And I often have that sense also about the modern categories that get used over and over of religious versus secular. I mean, I, I think we try to understand movements and politics and so forth in those religious versus secular terms. And often that just sort of sheds more darkness than light. So uh, following Eliot, I thought it might be more illuminating to think of these things as competing religiosities more than, you know, secular as a non-religious thing and, and religion. And so that's what the book tries to explore. Well, speaking of religiosities and how you classify things, I'm going to ask you a question. To, I'm going to ask you now to respond to some comments by a critic of your book, if you don't mind, to see how sure. that that um, gives you a chance to respond. Um, to wit, David Delbertson, associate professor at the University of Southern California, writing in the left-wing Catholic magazine Commonweal, accuses you of making elementary mistake, one that anyone with even a cursory knowledge of Christianity, he says, can see. He thinks you associate in a very simple-minded way, you know, his lovely way of putting things, Christianity with divine transcendence and paganism with the idea that the divine is imminent in the world. And how would before you respond, I would just say that in his foreword to your book, Robert George seems to anticipate this objection of, of people like Albertson and shows what's wrong with their objections. George says that you do not overlook the fact that Christianity and Judaism while understanding God as transcendent also see God as active and in that sense imminent in the affairs of the world. In Christianity, God even becomes incarnate, enters the world as a human being. So how would you address Albertson's uh, criticisms? Yeah, I, uh, he actually presented a paper from which that article was derived at a conference that I attended last summer, I guess, or um, about a, a, almost a year ago. And so uh, I was familiar with it, and I thought it was an interesting paper, and he presented it in a charitable spirit and so forth. So I, this is the kind of engagement really that I think is, is welcome, you know, okay. in the academy. Um, I, um, and, and I will, uh, a couple things I would acknowledge right from the first. One is, as Robert George mentioned in the foreword, um, I tried to say over and over again that Christianity is not just a purely transcendent religion. You know, mm -hmm. Christianity uh, not only thinks that God is active in the world, but is kind of distinctive in saying that God actually became a human being. You know, was born as a baby, went through you know all of the uh, all of the aspects of mortality. You know, was suffered pain, was killed, uh, and resurrected. Of course, in the Christian view, but it's true that Christians believe in that, and that a lot of that was scandalous to pagans. Um, not the idea that God might come down and assume human form, because Greek and Roman gods did that, uh, obviously from time to time but that God would actually suffer himself to be killed, you know, crucified, mistreated, and so forth. That was scandalous. And so I, even from early drafts of the book, people would point that out to me. Christianity is not just a transcendent religion. And I tried to be clear and acknowledge that point a number of times in the book. So I will admit that I find it just slightly annoying when people <laughs> say that I yeah, didn't acknowledge that. But uh, the other thing I'll acknowledge is that, once again, terms like transcendent and imminent get used in different ways. And so um, uh, I think Albertson says, well, the Greek gods were transcendent. Well, I suppose in some senses they were transcendent. I mean, they were superior to human beings. They were immortal. You know, it's not uh, too surprising that someone might use the adjective transcendent for things like that. Nonetheless, a number of scholars, I think, indicate that in a somewhat more technical sense, uh, the Greek and Roman gods were not transcendent. They were imminent gods. They were within this world. Yeah, um, uh, this is not only scholars, but uh, for example, I, I think I uh, quote um, the uh, Jewish rabbi and I think very profound thinker, Abraham Heschel, you know, mm -hmm. who, who points out that uh, the way he puts it is um, that the Greek gods were, uh, the Greeks worship nature, you know, and God within nature. 
and that biblical man, as he puts it, uh, did not do this, you know, saw a God beyond nature and so forth and worshiped a God beyond nature. And I think that's true for Christianity as well. Now, just one further point here. It is definitely true that within the Christian tradition, um, the let's say the nature of God, obviously, and the connection or relations between transcendence and imminence have been ongoing su- subjects of reflection. And different Christian thinkers will emphasize one or another aspect of, of God. Uh, s- some will emphasize transcendence. Some will emphasize imminence. Um, I think it's uh, true that particularly in modern times, let's say, uh, Christian thinkers that are sometimes described as modernist or liberal strongly emphasize the imminence um, as opposed to the transcendence, sometimes almost to the exclusion of the transcendence. Um, I mean, this was a way, I think, for them of trying to reconcile Christianity with uh, a lot of modern development, science, and modern politics and progressivism and so forth. So that when someone like uh, Professor Albertson uh, says Christianity is basically distinctive just because it's an imminent religion, I think that is a mistake historically, but I think it is, um, let's say, very much in line with the sort of modernist tendency to emphasize the imminence of God. And I would think I, I didn't do it, and I would have to do a lot more work in order to do it if I could. But you could add another chapter to the book talking about, well, to put it provocatively, let's say the paganization of Christianity with an emphasis on uh, imminence, you know, as the essence of of Christian worship. And um, I do think that is a sort of a tendency in the direction of the sort of modern paganism. And perhaps I don't really know his background or all of his views. It may be that Professor Albertson is sort of in that in that movement. Uh, as I say, I can't say for sure, but what he said there sounded to me like something that resonates with that way of trying to understand Christianity. Okay, well that that's that answers the Albertson issue very yeah. well. Um, moving to the contemporary issue, and of course your book does address um, the modern political scene and how all these issues play out uh, on the polit- socio cultural stage. Uh, could you tell us about Laycock's question and how you address it in very question, that is Laycock's question and how you address it in various sections of your book and how it relates to ongoing court cases that we've all read about Baker involving Baker's florists and other small business owners and their relations with same-sex couple would-be or existing customers? Yeah, so Doug Laycock is uh, one of the leading scholars and sometimes litigators um, of religious liberty today, I think, and he's somebody that I sometimes agree with, sometimes disagree with, but I admire him very much. I think he's done really good work, both scholarly work and, and you know, more legal and litigating work. Doug is a, um, well, at least according to a description he gave some years back, I don't know if this reflects his current thinking, but he describes himself as an agnostic and he's um, pretty libertarian, it seems to me, in his overall leaning. So he's someone who thinks and has been saying for a long time that there ought to be some perfectly acceptable compromise in some of these culture war issues. And more specifically, uh, well before Obergefell, I think Doug uh, recommended that uh, we ought to accept same-sex marriage uh, and so forth. Uh, the, the law ought to respect some of the, uh, let's say, the sexual morality resulting from the sexual revolution, not try to regulate sexuality and, uh, and so forth. But also that there ought to be ample accommodation for religious freedom. I think in in Doug's view, and he's hardly alone in this. I mean, there are other people uh, who basically share this view. We should just be able to live and let live. And that seems like uh, an attractive possibility. And it's frustrating, I think, to Doug and to people, you know, who view things that way, that people on both sides of the culture war issues don't seem to be willing to accept that, that, um, as he says, they, everybody seems to want a total victory. They want to crush the others. And so that's, uh, I think what I describe as Laycock's question. You know, why is it that people on both sides of the divide don't seem willing to just accept that sort of live and let live view the way he understands it, at least, um, that, that ought to be possible. And I think that's a question that is a modern version of the same kind of question that could be raised in uh, late antiquity. 
because it seemed, as I suggested in one of the chapters, to both Christians and pagans in the late Roman Empire, that there ought to be some way in which uh, they should just be able to get along well enough. Uh, Christians like Tertullian, you know, argued, say, you know, we're good citizens. We um, we support the emperor. We pray for the emperor. We pretty much associate with Romans in almost all the activities of life. But just because we believe in certain things, you're always persecuting us, and sometimes in very severe ways, of course. Um, and there were Romans, I think, on the other side of the issue who also thought that it should be really quite easy to get along. All we're really asking of the Christians is that they acknowledge you know, the emperor's deity, throw some incense on the, you know, on the altar or something, nothing very hard. They should be able to do that. So, so it seemed to people on both sides at that time that there should be some live and let live situation that would be perfectly acceptable to both sides. And I try to explain in one of the chapters of the book how, however appealing that position might have been, it really wasn't a viable one, it, uh, that people on both sides were misunderstanding what was at stake and misunderstanding the way in which their views actually did commit them to things that were fundamentally incompatible with the views of people on the other side. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, I know that you, I just want to interrupt to, to say at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we're talking today with Stephen D. Smith, the author of the book, Pagans and Christians in the City, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac. I'm sorry to have interrupted you, Steve. I want. I just wanted to mention that you, you really talk fascinatingly about the book, about the, the fact that the the Romans or the or the pagans basically regarded the Christian insistence on sexual continence and marital fidelity as not only irksomely constraining but uh, as bizarre and unhealthy and unfathomable they just couldn't could not grasp why a man should not be uh, lead a sexual life as free as he as he wanted to or as the woman stayed at home and was chased and so forth yes um I think that was true. I mean, not only was the Christian position restrictive, you know, in the pagan view, but it was unhealthy, and not just in a sort of a mundane psychological sense, but there was something about it that was almost incomprehensible because hmm. in the pagan view, uh, sexuality, you know, and, and let's say sexual relations, were, I think Kyle Harper, the historian, describes it as something like um, a manifestation of the imminent indwelling of the divine. I'm not sure if I've quoted him exactly, but you know, there's something actually quite divine or sacred uh, about sexual relations that the Christian view seemed not to accept and so forth. So, so there was a fundamental difference in understanding there. And I think something similar to, parallel to that, uh, that difference uh, again, exists in current cultures, uh, which is again one reason why sexuality and issues related to sexuality, like abortion, marriage, contraception, and so forth, um, are at the core of culture war issues today. That you know that was central to the dif differences then, and it remains central to the differences now. Well, absolutely. I was going to ask that in terms of modern paganism, that when people have kind of a rosy view of 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 how wonderful everything was, the, the state of sexual freedom and liberation in the pagan era, but it was pretty bad. It was pretty awful for women. And I just want to uh, ask, in, in terms of modern paganism, that is, we've seen some pretty dire consequences of this freewheeling sexual revolution with the consequences for women and young girls, as we saw in the Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein cases. Were those, would you consider those men sort of modern pagans and sort of poster boys for the whole pagan culture? <laughs> well, I, I guess I can't really judge anybody in particular, but I, I, I would say that the sort of prevailing sexual morality uh, that we associate with sexual revolution and that we see, I think, exemplified just pervasively on television, movies, all kinds of media and so forth, has a lot of uh, resemblance to the sort of pagan view of sexuality in late antiquity. Uh, I, I mean, there are definitely differences. And one of the differences that you've kind of alluded to is that the um, ancient Roman view was very self-consciously a sort of double standard view, you know, the, uh, for men the sort of sexual norms were totally different than they were for women. And that was one of the reasons why it could be quite oppressive because the practice of that kind of sexuality depended then uh, pervasively on slavery and prostitution, you know, as the main avenues of sexual, sexual expression for men. And 
in, in some of those respects, I think the norms today are really quite different. You know, it would be much more today would be much more egalitarian and so forth. But the basic idea of sexuality is essentially um, today we insist on the sort of consenting nature of it. But um, uh, and obviously people like Harvey Weinstein and so forth, you know, have not respected that norm. But um, as a basically healthy and indeed kind of a manifestation of the highest or something that's almost sacred, that has almost a sacral or religious quality, I think that is actually similar uh, today to, you know, what the understandings were in ancient Rome. Well, yeah, I'd like to ask, continuing on another topic, you mentioned that there were other aspects. It wasn't just this, the sexual continence issue that that puzzled and bewildered and angered, really infuriated the pagans about the Christians. Was There were other aspects, and you talked about there were certain things that can't we all get along, but the Christians said, no, this is fundamental to us. We can't just get along by sacrificing animals and so forth, and we have one God and so forth. What were What were some of the practices of the Christians besides fidelity and marriage that just upset and and really just maddened to to a to an extent that that drew just a wrath of heaven of heaven down upon i mean the wrath of of uh, just really savage yeah. reprisals what what were some of the things that christians did i mean you said well we pay our ta-, they say they would argue we pay our taxes we obey the law what is it why can't you just give us a break here Yes. So, uh, yeah, I will try to answer that question, although I guess I should say, just for clarification at the beginning, it's not true that the Roman authorities were engaged in constant persecution of Christians. That's you know, there, true. There That's were many true. places and many times in which they did manage to get along or, you know, relatively peacefully. There were, um, let's say, um, waves of repression from time mm-hmm. to time, and, and they were quite severe in many cases. But just to make it clear, it wasn't like an ongoing, steady persecution of Christians. Um, yes, I think you make that very clear in your book. I'm sorry to misrepresent it because you do say that it was intermittent oppression and it exactly. was first, they would be surprisingly tolerant at times. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also guess I say that insofar as they were tolerant, insofar as they get along, managed to get along quite well uh, much of the time, in part that probably did reflect a failure to understand the real commitments you know, of the opposing of the opposing positions, because the Christian position was yes, we believe. In fact, our Scripture teaches us that we're supposed to support uh, earthly authorities, and we can support the emperor and so forth. But we can't accept the emperor as divine. We can't. You know, let's say uh, Christians obviously differed in practice on this, but let's say committed Christians um, thought, you know, we can't sacrifice to the emperor, accepting the emperor as divine. And in fact, we are obligated to teach the truth of our more monotheistic religion, which uh, pagans, I think, correctly perceived was subversive of the, of the ethic and the cultural basis, you know, of pagan authority. Um, so in doing that, um, insofar as they did that, the Christians, uh, however much they may have thought in their own minds that we're happy to support Roman authorities, were in reality subversive. Uh, mm-hmm. In that respect, I think the, um, the pagans were correct to perceive that. Um, they, um, uh, and on the other side, some pagans, I think were, would have been quite happy to accept Christianity and accept Jesus, for example, as one among the gods. I mean, there was already a, a large pantheon of gods and it wouldn't have hurt to, you know, add another deity to the pantheon. Um, and some, uh, Roman emperors, even Alexander Severus apparently put a statue of Jesus in his private chapel, along with statues of other, you know, of other divine um, divinities or divine persons and so forth. And you can understand, I think, how from a pagan point of view, that would have seemed very tolerant and the Christians would have seemed very unreasonable uh, to refuse that sort of what would have seemed like reciprocity. You know, we'll accept your God if you'll accept our gods. Why can't we all just get along? Absolutely. We'll they would, like we will not be caught. The live and let live position. Absolutely. But the Christians, to accept Jesus, you know, as one God among many, was essentially to deny Jesus as the, uh, you know, as the divine person that they understood him to be, and so from their point of view, this was not a live and let live situation. This was a sort of a proposition of, we'll accept you if you will sacrifice your essential faith and accept ours. Well, yes, I'd like to follow up on that in terms of drawing a parallel to the modern era. You make a fascinating case that 
as just as pagans in the classical worlds tried to, for example, to make it difficult for Christians to operate in the marketplace, because if you will, if you will not be co-opted, then we'll marginalize you seem to be sort of the right. soft power aspect of, of the role of the pagan rule of uh, Roman rule. But um, this same tactic in terms of trying to marginalize Christian Christians and Christianity, it seems that uh, zealous progressives in our own time, they, they, they like to, sometimes they, they, not all, but some of them target small business owners who, for religious reasons, feel they cannot, in good conscience, for example, provide uh, services in same-sex wedding ceremonies, even they're happy to provide services to homosexual clients in every other respect, but they will not, there are certain, that they will not get, will not provide that particular service. And the, even though the customer could get it elsewhere, there's just this kind of endless tug of war between, I will not do that for you, but I will do this for you. And you must do this for me because this is the civic norm and I will sue you and I will bankrupt you if you don't. And it's, could you comment on, on this, this historical line between the economic power of the pagan in the past and the modern pagan now? Yes. So um, in, if, I, if I can start again with, say, late antiquity, mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say that in um, basically the 4th century going into the 5th century, there came to be a kind of struggle between Christianity and paganism for essentially to, to define what the empire was. You know, would it be a pagan empire? Would it be a Christian empire? This wasn't an overt struggle at all times, but, you know, looking back on it, you can see, you know, that this sort of struggle was going on. And one of the main ways in which this occurred was as part of a kind of a contest for control of the essential symbols that constituted the empire. Um, There's a a famous book about imagined communities that suggests that communities, a political community exists um, not as a physical fact, but as something that we imagine and we conceive of ourselves as belonging to a community and to a community of a particular kind. That's Benedict Anderson? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, and public symbols are one of the important markers or, you know, factors in, in sort of um, supporting those imaginings and thus in constituting the political community as the particular kind of community that it was. So there was, for example, one of the more dramatic, interesting, I think, incidents was a, a contest in late antiquity over something that was called the Altar of Victory. It was a pagan altar that was put outside the Senate House in Rome. It had been put there by the Emperor Augustus, um, and it was clearly a pagan symbol. Um, uh, Constantius, Constantine's son, uh, when he became emperor, was a Christian emperor, um, not orthodox, but you know, a Christian emperor, and he had the pagan symbol removed, the altar of victory removed. Later, Julian, the emperor who attempted a restoration of paganism, had it restored. Later, another pagan, uh, excuse me, another Christian emperor, Gratian, had it removed again. A senator, Symmachus, um, who was a pagan, made an eloquent plea to have it restored, which uh, the powerful bishop of Milan, Ambrose, stoutly resisted. And I, one modern historian says, well, it's hard to understand why the people could have so much uh, passion about a harmless piece of furniture. But I suggest that it wasn't a harmless piece of furniture. It was a constitutive symbol, and everybody involved understood that this is one of the symbols that helps us to create and imagine and constitute the emperor, the empire as a political community that's Christian or that's pagan. So I think that a lot of the contemporary struggles now uh, over symbol, you mentioned crosses and things of that sort, um, are basically, again, understandable largely as reflecting that kind of a contest, you know, over what kind of political community do we belong to? People on both sides will say something like, well, who cares that much about a cross? I mean, it doesn't really hurt anybody. It doesn't cost any money. Um, people on both sides, why do they care that much about it? But, but I'm suggesting the people on both sides are a little bit more perceptive than that, and they understand that these kinds of symbols are constitutive of the kind of community that we live in. So I think the same is true in the wedding vendor cases that you were asking about. Um, someone might say, um, why does anybody care that much that one baker or one florist doesn't want to do a same-sex wedding when there are plenty of other bakers and plenty of other florists? And sometimes these arguments get cashed, tried, people try to cash them out in terms of, yeah, but it might be that they'd have a hard time you know, finding another baker or another florist. Well, you can imagine circumstances in which that could be true, but that hasn't been true in any of the actual controversies 
And I think it's hard to deny that something else is going on there. And what's going on, I would suggest again, is that religious freedom and issues about same-sex marriage, because they're right at the divide between, again, the, the sort of more Christian and the more eminently religious or progressive or pagan, if I can use the word, um, sort of views of the polity and of, of life, uh, these are important symbols. And I think that's why people struggle about them and, and see correctly, I believe, that there is significance in these kinds of in these kinds of issues. That's my interpretation anyway. Well, I, I, I think that doesn't Laycock make the point that not only is it, as you say, it's not just about the cake, but it's going to be, we don't want you even to do business. We want to make sure that you can't even operate in the marketplace, period. You're, you know, it's not enough that you don't, that, that, that I'm going to sue you. It's that, I, your, that your business will be crushed. And you will be no longer allowed to be a baker, period. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, not everybody takes that view, of course, no, but definitely no. some of the, um, you know, the, some of the more sort of stalwart advocates and participants in these debates take that position, and quite openly, I think, you know, it's, uh, to someone like Jack Phillips, the Colorado baker, say, we're not telling you you can't be a Christian. We're just saying if you're going to be a Christian, you can't be a baker of the kind. You know, you need to find some other way to make a living, um, and so forth. Um, and some other ways so that, you know, you can be Christian as long as you keep it sort of private and not part of the marketplace and the public sphere in the way that you're trying to do. Uh, and once again, I think you can understand that motivation in terms of the symbolic significance. Well, yes, you're right that, that pagans often consider in terms of the, 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 the we can't, the, the get along aspect that the, the pagans consider Christians in your words to be inflexible, dogmatic, and undeserving of accommodation, that we're just, we're not going to do that for you, in other words. but um, Yeah. And of course, someone like Laycock would say, you see that attitude on both sides of the, yeah. both sides of the divide. Uh, and I think you sort of do. I just think, I, I interpret that a little different than he does. It's not just sort of some kind of irrational stubbornness or desire to, you know, defeat the other side so much as an understanding that, these are public symbols that help constitute our community as one kind of thing or another kind of thing. And that matters a lot. That's not unimportant. Whoops. Um, yes, I'd like, yeah, that's not, I, yeah, I was just going to say, I, or it's not unimportant when the terms of, uh, it's not just same-sex marriage, but it's also the fact that in order to do business, you must, the the more zealous of the the, the left would say, not only do you have to provide the, the, the cake, you have to provide uh, insurance, uh, health insurance that covers abortion, and you have to provide contraception related, even though, again, the woman could probably get that, all of those services from, from her own salary. I don't, you know, it's, it's that you must provide that particular thing, or you're not, uh, uh, you're not part of the state. You're not showing allegiance to the state. And wasn't that a common criticism by pagans of Christians that you're not showing sufficient allegiance or patriotism, or you're, you're suspect for those very reasons. You're not kowtowing to the certain, as you say, constitutive elements of this, of citizenship. Well, you, uh, I think you're sort of alluding now to something like the Hobby Lobby litigation that was uh, extremely controversial. Hobby Lobby, uh, uh, a business owned by basically a small uh, a family, just a, a very small group of people who are dedicated Christians, I think, and define their their business vocation in Christian terms, didn't want to provide um, contraceptive uh, insurance coverage that would include contraceptions, contraceptives that they considered to be abortifacients. They weren't opposed to contraception in general, but there were certain contraceptives that they regarded as producing abortion. And so that, I mean, that was just one of the cases um, the Supreme Court eventually took, but um, generated a great deal of controversy. Now, to be fair, I, I think it would be wrong to say that there were that there were only symbolic issues there. I mean, something like that presumably does have some real impact on people and so forth. Nonetheless, uh, it did seem as if there was sort of an insistence on one side that not only should this sort of insurance coverage be provided, but we really want it provided by the employer. You know, you, you can look at that and see, you know, there was an, so when the Supreme Court suggested that the government actually could have achieved the same goal in a different way by treating for-profit corporations like Hobby Lobby in the same way that nonprofit religious corporations were treated, there was a great deal of opposition to that. And, uh, and I don't want to oversimplify it. I mean, it's complicated. 
but one of the motivations uh, that you may discern in that and that I discern is that we want the employer to acknowledge the public norm here. Um, so if you interpret it that way, at least, then you can see again, something is similar to the ancient attempt to say, if you want to participate in the marketplace, you need to acknowledge the deities, or we might say today, the egalitarian progressive public norms that may be inconsistent with at least uh, what many Christians you know, think their faith teaches. Yeah, I think that, that you make the point in the book that the one of the they, they would the pagans would realize, as you say, that the Christians actually were a threat to, the, to many ideals of the of the Roman Empire, and one of the ways that they tried to to tap down the Christian influence was to forbid them from teaching, and that that is somewhat similar to what's happening in some respects with modern paganism. That there it seems increasingly difficult unless you adhere to the tenets of modern paganism that it's, it's very difficult to get a job in teaching. It's difficult. It's increasingly difficult to, to remain in pharmacy or medicine or commerce generally. Is that just, do you, do you see that happening at all? Or, um, I mean, somewhat, you know, there's obviously room to disagree. I mean, I, I do sort of suggest that there's uh, been a movement in that direction. Um, yeah. You know, the pharmacy, the, the pharma, uh, the drugstores in Washington who didn't want to dispense abortifacients and basically, you know, there were crack, the state cracked down on them. You know, these wedding vendor cases, um, uh, areas of abortion and so forth, I'll raise these, I'll raise these issues. Um, yeah, I don't want to oversimplify too much because, let's say, I work in the academy. I, yeah, that's right. A lot of people that uh, are my friends that I respect, I don't think they're in bad faith and so forth, you know, would disagree about a lot of uh, uh, some of them would disagree about some of these things and so forth. There are a lot of different views and so forth. They can't all be reduced to one view. Nonetheless, if you sort of step back and try and look at the overall direction of things, let's say, um, so if we went back to the 1950s, um, you say most of the legal norms relative to sexuality reflected at least sort of residual Christian or biblical type views. Uh, Abortion was illegal most places. Contraceptives were regulated most places. Obscenity, you know, was was regulated. Marriage was, you know, one person, you know, one man, one woman. Um, on the books, this was probably hardly ever enforced. But um, there were even laws against fornication and adultery and so forth. So, so, so the public norms, as reflected on the books, were um, pretty much Christian norms. Um, today, that's almost completely reversed. I would say, you know. Um, Partly through legislation, a lot of this has happened through Supreme Court decisions and so forth. Well, but- well speak, speaking of that, if you don't mind, I'd like to read uh, to read a bit from your book about the Supreme Court and and have you comment on what you actually said in the book, if that's all right. Sure. It, it, you wrote uh, beginning and then and this is about the the sort of well, it speaks for itself. So I'll let you speak for itself. It says beginning in the mid nineteen eighties, the court explicitly began to articulate doctrine in terms of a constitutional prohibition on public messages of endorsement of religion. Likewise, you write, in their campaign to eliminate the transcendent dimension of American public religiosity, dot, 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 I cut a little bit, the courts have in effect pushed our official conceptions of our political community in an imminent or pagan direction. So I'd like to ask, what were the origins of this development? What, the, what, are, what have been the ramifications of this, say, in the, in the recent decades? And who were the justices most notable in this shift? Okay, first of all, the origins, uh, what you mentioned first. Well, that, you know, that's complicated and arguably goes back a long ways. I argue in the book that although Christianity prevailed in late antiquity over paganism as sort of an official matter, that it was always complicated and paganism in one form or another kind of remained uh, actually a very important component of, you know, Western societies and so forth. So, So my argument in the book is that what's happened is not so much that, you know, paganism has been revived from nothing. But that a paganism that was always there, in you know, taking different forms and so forth, um, has let's say um, made an effort in recent decades to cast off the vestiges of the sort of official Christianity that had persisted for for centuries. Um, so, so the origins, I would say, go way back. And then, do you want to say you know? But in modern times, there's been a sort of more aggressive. I talk about it almost as a, I, I think, as a counter-revolution, sort of a pagan counter-revolution, trying to throw off the Christian revolution uh, of the fourth and fifth centuries. When did that start? You know, with these sorts of questions, it's 
and say, yeah, well, you can see definitely a beginning here. And then someone can say, yeah, but you can see an earlier antecedent to that. And trying to figure out when it really started is very hard. But I do think you say in the 1960s with the sexual revolution, if you had to look to some sort of a you know, watershed point or a marker, that would stand out, I think, as as a time when things really began to change you know, uh, significantly. And, and that's continued, I think. Um, now, let's see. Who on the uh, in the passage that you read from the book, I mentioned that in the mid 1980s the court began to say that the establishment clause of the Constitution, the First Amendment's establishment clause, prohibits government from doing or saying things that send a message endorsing religion, um, and that is when the court began to say that. Uh, that, however, was part of a more general movement, I would say, uh, of let's say uh, overthrowing the more Christian constitutional norms that would have begun earlier. There, if you wanted to pick a particular decision as one that suggests a real change, well, two, I guess I would say. The school prayer decisions of the early 1960s, I think, were very important in this respect. And Griswold against Connecticut, the mid-1960s contraception case, reflect, I think, a, a, a significant change here in which the court's beginning to interpret the Constitution to basically forbid Christian norms, you know, to exclude Christian norms as public norms of governance. You know, again, not to deny that they can exist in private, but as public norms of governance, there's a big change there. And by now, that's been largely consummated, I think. So you can see this, I think, if you just think about something like, um, well, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, mm -hmm. uh, which, in my view, is probably the most profound statement ever made by any sort of American uh, public official or, you know, or, um, or, or politician. And it's just overtly religious and unapologetically. So, I mean, it's biblical, it has repeated references to God. Um, and, um, under sort of modern thinking, thinking identified, let's say associated with say John Rawls and the notion of public reason, that whole thing is somewhat suspect and Rawls strains to explain why, why, um, Lincoln's second inaugural address wouldn't be completely impermissible under his thinking, and you know, and the explanations that he comes up with are not particularly convincing. But nonetheless, his position, I think, something like it, whether people have read Rawls or not, is by now widely widely accepted. So, if you take something like the controversy over same-sex marriage, uh, there were a lot of cases before Obergefell that litigated that issue, obviously. And in most of those cases, under either due process or, or equal protection constitutional doctrines, basically states that wanted to defend traditional marriage laws were required to show that they had some significant interest in maintaining these laws. And they usually tried unsuccessfully to discharge that burden by arguing that traditional marriage was good for families and good for children and so forth. And the courts tended to reject that. Um, what they never did was actually say uh, people in our community or in our state actually have a view of marriage that's informed by their religious conceptions, and we think we have a right to reflect that in our laws. It was just sort of understood, I think, by everybody concerned that that wasn't an argument that you could that you could make. You know, if you were to say that, your case would just be doomed. But at many earlier periods in American history, there would have been, I think, nothing surprising about that. You know, <laughs> um, you know that would have been part of the repertoire of, of um, argument and rhetoric, you know, that Americans would have engaged in. The Bible says this, or, you know, the Supreme Court said as late as 1952, we're a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. So there's just been, I think, an obvious and dramatic change in that respect where ideas and arguments that were once perfectly permissible and natural are now thought to be totally out of bounds, um, just assumed to be out of bounds. You know, my law students or lawyers, you know, it just wouldn't occur to them that they could make that because they understand, you know, that's not permissible in today's climate. And that, I think, is a reflection of this sort of change that I've been been trying to describe and understand. Well, I thought your your reading of, of your discussion of Rawls is very tortured, trying to read out the religiosity of, of Lincoln's writings and speeches was quite funny because you just made it sound like that Rawls was just determined to, to strip any any religious feeling out of, out of Lincoln's thought and in, in a very unconvincing way that you really outlined very well. Um, you mentioned John Rawls, and I, I wanted to 
ask a follow-up question to another scholar you mentioned, Robin West, who I had not heard of. And it, it's interesting to me that it seemed that she diff- her ideas differ from Rawls because she has this idea of shared values. And it seems that well, Rawls wants to just exclude religious input from into public debate. West seems to sort of, I, to, my, to my view, sort of disingenuously welcome religious people into public debate and allow them to operate in the economy, provided that they adopt what she, what her values are and renounce most of their own values. It just seems like, oh, well, you're, you're perfectly welcome to in, engage in, in civic discourse as long as you have, understand the parameters of the left that, that exists now. And that's kind of the, the winner take all of the left at this point in, in, by Mark Touchnet and so forth. Could you address Robin West's view? Um, yeah, first of all, on Rawls, I mean, I think Rawls, you know, was trying to do something that um, is difficult to do and important. Um, it's a very legitimate thing, and that is to come up with some way in which, among people of very different views, we can nonetheless have a sort of mutually respectful polity. And he tried to do it, I think, by elaborating some notion of public reason that would, uh, he modified his position over the years and so forth, and he tried to introduce provisos, for example, that would allow for a certain amount of religious discourse. But basically the idea is, you know, we should bracket our comprehensive views, including, for example, Christian views and so forth, when we're engaging with major political decisions, major political issues, and kind of talk within a more um, area of overlapping consensus in which we sort of share share beliefs. And it does have the effect of excluding, to some degree or another, you know, religious reasons from influencing public discourse. But I think he did want it to be something that everybody, you know, in his view would be able to participate in. Uh, that, I think, uh, again, is sort of a modern reflection of the same kind of error, in my view, that pagans made when uh, they thought that we're perfectly willing to accept Christians as long as they'll just engage in this reciprocal discourse and so forth. You know, they'll respect our gods and we'll respect theirs, not understanding that just wasn't something that was consistent with, with the Christian view. My view is that in the end, Rawls's public reason kind of has that same effect. But I think he, you know, was trying to make room for conversation. Now, Robin West, I think, was less concerned about regulating the public discourse, but the part of the book that I, uh, where I invoke her, she's uh, disagreeing with recent decisions that would do things like respect free exercise exemptions. Um, she thinks of those as allowing people to exit from the political community which she describes repeatedly as, you know, our shared values, our values of fairness and justice and so forth. And to me, to my mind, um, the motivation may be good, but the description is just pretty unbelievable. <laughs> and you know, say our shared values mean basically your values. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. There's, there's my way or the highway sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and on that, another thinker that I guess we're getting towards, we are getting towards the end of the conversation, which I'm very much enjoying, but I wanted to ask about, Ronald, you, you talk about how paganism is, is kind of make, is make, is making, is resurge, is surging once again. It, it, one of the reasons for that is that it's pretty undemanding. I mean, when you, t- you talk about Ronald Dworkin and he has sort of this quasi-spiritual sort of gauzy view of, well, we're going to all be sort of spiritual without having any actual content mm-hmm. in our, or, or, or any religious comprehensive doctrine kind of thing. Could you discuss Ronald Dworkin's, how he plays into all of this? Yeah. So Dworkin uh, is someone that I discuss at some length in one of the uh, chapters as a, as an example of this tendency, I think, to an imminent religiosity. Dworkin was maybe the most important English-speaking legal philosopher of the last generation or two, and he was pretty resolutely secular, I think, in almost all of his writing. But he was always straining to come up with some ground for, you know, for categorical rights or categorical moral commitments. And in his last book, he called it Religion Without God. And he, um, he you know, it says we, it, and it's something in the lines of, uh, along the lines of Spinoza and, uh, and Einstein, and he claims Paul Tillich, at least, you know, a kind of a religion that doesn't depend upon any affirmation of a transcendent deity or anything of that sort, but that still asserts that there's objective meaning and objective goodness, goodness in life. Uh, Dworkin says that's his religion, and he thinks that's the religion of millions of other Americans, and I suspect that he's probably right about that. So in the last chapter, I ask whether this is sort of a viable um, way to go for the future. Could we have 
kind of a restoration of the ancient pagan city now along the lines of modern paganism of the imminent type of the Dworkin, Dworkin type. And I don't know the answer to that question, uh, but I'm doubtful. Um, and one of the aspects of it that I discussed that you just alluded to is that I don't know whether there's enough content in this sort of modern paganism or imminent religiosity to really do what religion needs to do. It, I think, tends not to be very demanding. It tends not to have public ceremonies, you know, uh, rituals and so forth, you know, uh, liturgy that, you know, can sustain people's, you know, religious devotion and faith and praise and commitment and so forth. And it tends to be fairly minimalist in its intellectual content and possibly, uh, at least my view would be, not very satisfying in its intellectual content as well. So, uh, so That's I'm very ironic, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, if I'm right about that, those are some pretty severe limitations in, in modern paganism. Um, I should say. But, you well, know. Oh, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, there are other views. And I mean, if you want um, a more uh, robust modern paganism, intellectually robust modern paganism, I mentioned uh, a book called Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan by Anthony Cronman, former dean of the Yale Law School. This came out several years ago. And, and he heartily endorsed your book. I saw that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we, uh, I appreciate his respect, his endorsement, and I have a great deal of admiration for him too. Um, his book is intellectually just magnificent. I think, you know, it's kind of a staggering achievement. It's about 1,200 pages long too, by the way, you know. Yeah. But, but philosophically, it's just extremely rich. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's much more substantial, let's say, intellectually than Dworkin's very brief book, you know, or the, the Dworkin's book could be. In the end, I have the same doubts about it in, in these terms. Uh, and I, I might just mention, so um, so Tony Cronman actually came to a conference that we had here at University of San Diego uh, about my book. And he was very generous and I thought extremely insightful in his contributions. But when we talked about his book, I raised these questions. I said, I don't understand, though, why your Spinoza type of paganism will be satisfying to anyone. I said, uh, to, to traditional religious believers or Christians, it seems pretty empty. You know, it is, there's no resurrection. Ouch. There's no, you know, and so forth. And to traditional secularists, and most of the people at our conference, you know, were philosophers and, and probably were quite secular in their views. I don't see that it tells them anything either. I think it, that they just think it just tells us that what we already believe now, there's a sort of kind of reason, indwelling reason or necessity behind it. But what does that really give us that we didn't already have? And it was interesting because I think my sense was uh, that most people in the room sort of agreed with that criticism and that uh, Tony uh, Cronman himself <laughs> said quite endearingly, I think he said, um, Sometimes I wonder whether I'm the only one who finds the only person who finds the finds this satisfying. To me, it gives a lot, but it's true. Most people don't seem on either the secular, let's say, or the religious side, don't seem to find much here. You know that would respond to the sorts of needs and beliefs and commitments that religion, I think, tries to respond to. So um, there are different versions of paganism. I'm just skeptical whether paganism. Uh, well, let's say we'll be any more successful now than it was really for ancient pagans once they became more philosophically, uh, more philosophically sophisticated. I think ancient paganism ultimately became neo-paganism and neoplatonism became kind of conduits for people like Augustine into Christianity, um, and I kind of wonder whether it's any more satisfactory today than it was then. Well, Steve, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you know, the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Oh, yeah. Well, I actually am working now on a book about authority. Um, the, the tentative title is called Fictions, Lies, and the Authority of Law. And it takes <laughs> off, just as this book took That's off. It's a great title, by the directors. way. I hope it'll be you know, uh, an intriguing to some people. This book that we've been talking about takes off from the T.S. Eliot lectures. The, the authority book takes off from a, a statement made by Hannah Arendt uh, in the 20th century when she said that authority has disappeared from the modern world. We no longer understand what it is, and this amounts to the loss of the groundwork of the world. So that's a pretty provocative claim. 
and I try to explore different aspects of it. Uh, some of it is more conventional law stuff, constitutional interpretation, statutory interpretation, and so forth. But it comes around to a sort of an Augustinian reflection in the end. So there's a little bit of connection, I think, with with the pagans and Christians' book. Well, well, it sounds like you you are. I know you're an incredibly productive scholar. So I will just thank no. you for writing this book, which I immensely enjoyed. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Stephen D. Smith, the author of the book Pagans and Christians in the City, Culture Wars from the Tiber to the Potomac. And thank you, listeners. And before we hang up, Steve, I need you to hang you need to hang on after I say bye-bye. But for now, I'll say thanks, Steve, and bye-bye to our listeners. See you again. Thanks very much for the discussion. Mm-hmm.